0: If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in the craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed.
1: Thanks, Helen. Let's um, let's pray together. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Father, I pray that you would show us why that is the case. That you would change our hearts, that we would be wise in your sight. And that you would stir us to not want to be wise in the eyes of the world, but instead to be wise in your eyes. Thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the freedom we have to teach it and to hear from it together now. And I pray that you'd instruct our hearts, warm our hearts, that we might be fools for Christ in the week ahead. Amen. Great, Will do um, keep that passage open in front of you. Um, True servants preach the cross. You'll be pleased to know that I don't believe in aliens. But if aliens did exist and they descended on Long Quendon Baptist Church, descended on our homes for, say, the next week, I wonder how they would describe your life, my life, our life. What are some of the buzzwords they would use to describe this church? I hope you're feeling encouraged at the moment and so you're coming up with some positive words that they would speak. Um, Perhaps not. As you flick through 1 Corinthians, these are some of the ways that the Apostle Paul describes the church. And it's not particularly pleasant reading. Just flick yourself through that list on the screen. It's quite uncomfortable reading, isn't it? But as you read through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, these are different things that Paul describes the church to be like. He's writing to them, ultimately to encourage them, but a big part of that encouragement is rebuking them. And this is some of the stuff that he has heard, that's been reported back to him, which he then needs to challenge in love. And it's not pleasant reading, is it? But this is the state of a, an immature church. And the frightening thing is, this is Paul's description of the church, but this on the screen is the Corinthians' description of themselves. If you were to sum up kind of Corinthian spirituality, there might be maybe four buzzwords that the Corinthian church were proud of. They called themselves spiritual. and There's lots of references there to their spirituality. Uh, In many ways, they reckoned that they were wise. And Paul turns that on its head and challenges them as to what true wisdom is. They prided themselves on knowledge, what they knew and how much they knew. And Paul challenged them on what true God-honoring knowledge looks like. And perhaps the biggest one that comes up the most in 1 Corinthians is is that the Corinthians were a proud people who prided themselves on power. Corinth was an incredibly powerful place. And in many ways, as we learnt in the early chapters, as well as he was preaching on 1 Corinthians, Corinth had got into the church. And so it's quite frightening, isn't it? Because you hear here Paul's description of the church, and it's pretty negative. You hear the Corinthians' description, as it were, or at least the sentiment of the way that they viewed themselves. And there's a bit of a conflict, which is why our passage begins. Come to chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes to them and says, so do not deceive yourselves. It's a puzzling thing to say, isn't it? Often, we deceive other people. I could deceive you by leaving you astray and telling you a lie. But here he says, don't deceive yourselves. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because if you cast your mind back two weeks ago, when we were last in 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, the title for that talk was this. True unity comes through humility. And if we fail to be humble, and instead we are proud then we will deceive self, because we'll think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And that was exactly the problem in Corinth, that the Christians in Corinth, many of them, were proud. They lacked humility. Which is why this passage flows perfectly on from chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, because this is a chapter that continues to teach us about the cross. And it's at the cross that we see true humility. But if we forget the cross, then we will deceive ourselves. And that's what Paul is going to be explaining So look at what he goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 3. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. It's quite a provocative thing to say to this church that prided themselves on being proud. But what Paul is doing is he's turning Corinthian spirituality on its head. All the things on the screen behind me that they were proud of, he's kind of challenging and saying, these aren't things to be proud of. Actually, they're very ugly things that are creating all the other things on the previous list that I just showed us. In a sense, what Paul is saying is when you come to understand the true gospel, to take the, the phrase of another author, it's like marching to the beat of a different drummer. The church is, not, like, is meant, not meant to be like the world. You see, the world is all about being self-centered, but the church is meant to be Christ-centered. The world's all about serving self, but the church is meant to be a place that serves others. So Paul is writing to this church to kind of turn on their head the very values that they pride themselves in that's causing all the relational fallout that the church is experiencing. And so he goes on, verse 19, and says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And the Corinthians, their ears prick up when they hear this word wisdom because they go, well, we're wise. And Paul says, be careful. Be careful as we go through this passage I'm not going to give it a particular structure there's not sort of points because what I want us to get is not so much information from this little chapter but more an impression so it might be hard to follow a clear structure but that's deliberate because it's really just the overall impression I want us to grasp as we move through to the end here's a question for you to consider why don't you just turn to the person next to you and, and, and see if you can answer that in just 30 seconds why is the wisdom of the world foolish what do you think I'm sure there's lots of wisdom in this room about what is why the world is so foolish. Um, I don't know what you said, but ultimately, if I was to sum it up, and I hope that you sort of empathize with this, ultimately, the reason that the wisdom of the world is foolish is because the world makes no room for God. What does Psalm 14 say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's why in um, James chapter 1, verse 5, that wonderful verse, if anyone lacks wisdom, he's to ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Why do we ask God for wisdom? Because he's the source of wisdom. The reason that the wisdom of the world is foolish is because the world makes no room for God. And that's what Paul challenges here. Because as we've seen so far in chapters 1 to 3, the problem, at least one of the problems in Corinth, is that people in the church are gathering around certain leaders. It's kind of becoming a bit tribal. It's almost celebrity. Thinking that maybe if I follow this particular leader, it will elevate me to some spiritual plane that will put me above everybody else. And Paul's challenging that. Look at what Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 3. He challenges them quite strongly. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. He says, leadership is about servant-hearted influence. It's not about celebrity. Now, I thank God that as pastors in this church, we're united and we work well together but there's always a reality that every church each individual in a church will have a sort of preferred pastor, either a particular person they like hearing when they preach or a particular manner with which they like dealing with Which is just normal I thank God that, that I don't think that this church is tribal and people are sort of drawing around a particular pastor, it would be very dangerous if that ever happened but it's worth checking our own hearts about the way that we relate to our leaders, are we in any danger of putting one leader on a pedestal above another in any particular way because Paul challenges it. Instead he says, listen, if you want to tr- spot what a true and godly and wise leader is like, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, this is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. What are the mysteries God has revealed? It's the gospel. She says, a truly wise, godly leader will be one who is servant-hearted and gospel-focused. That is what should be impressive to you. Not the great orator or the eloquent speaker or the person who's impressive in the way that they can lead others Paul says the true leader is the leader who's a servant and who's a gospel-centered man Or a gospel-centered woman He's calling for servants who are faithful to the gospel And he calls for gospel faithfulness you see chapter 4 verse 12 It's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful I care little if i'm judged by you or a human court indeed. I don't even judge myself My conscience is clear. But that doesn't make me innocent. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not a celebrity. I make mistakes. I'm not the perfect leader. So don't hold me on a pedestal. And indeed, don't hold any other leader on a pedestal. Just judge us on the basis of our faithfulness. God is looking for faithfulness to the gospel. One of the reasons that we... Are foolish if we make judgments as human beings too readily is that we lack God's omniscient perspective. Omni, Latin for all, scient to do with knowledge. God sees everything. The Bible says he's omniscient. Because he sees everything, he's able to be completely objective in the way that he judges people. He sees it all. But you and I lack that perspective. How easy is it for us to make a value judgment of another person simply on the basis of what we see? The eloquence of a speaker, and we're attracted to that over and above the godliness of the heart. Um, I think it happens a lot in the way that we can be quite tribalist churches. I'm not going to do it, but I could name some churches, locally and maybe nationally, from sort of different tribes, different denominations. And if a person came in the room and said, "I'm from this church," "I'm from that church," we automatically make value judgments. Well, you must be this sort of a Christian. You must believe this sort of theology. And we make judgments about people so quickly, without seeing the heart. Uh, just a little funny story I remember when I was 12 years old I was playing cricket I hated cricket and I was rubbish at it but we had to play it at school Uh, when you're 12 years old um, uh, there are certain boys who physically mature very very quickly and there was one guy who came uh, to play in the opposition he was a man basically we were 12 and he was a man he was 6 foot something he was a big black African guy and uh, he came to the crease and everybody visibly took a few steps back I happened to be fielding very close and uh, I took some steps back I didn't want him to wallop the ball at me I made a judgement, here was going to be a great batsman this great guy, he's going to be awesome, he's going to hit the ball really hard and he walks out to the crease and we're all sort of uh, uh, trembling in our shoes and I remember he comes to the crease and he goes, and he's asking for a guard which is about where you call for where your bat is lined up with the stumps and he looks at the umpire the other end and goes Middle, please his voice (laughs) suddenly broken. And he didn't even—he couldn't even play cricket, he was out first ball. And we were so terrified because this great monster of a guy stood there and we, we made a judgement of him straight away that led us to fear. But the reality is, he was hopeless at cricket, and although he was physically a man, he was still a boy, and his voice hadn't broken. And it's just a stupid story, but that's sometimes how we can treat other people, because we judge them, particularly our leaders, on the basis of what we might see, not on the basis of the heart. Remember you and I lack God's omniscient perspective. And this is why, verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, and this is an appeal, he's calling to them. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you might learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. It's a bit of a mouthful. But what he's saying is God has revealed to us in his word what a true servant is and what a true servant looks like a true servant as we've seen a a truly wise leader is godly is a servant and is someone who's gospel focused so Paul's saying don't go beyond that to find a leader that doesn't fulfill this criteria just because outwardly they might be impressive he says instead learn to value what God values then verse 6 you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other for who makes you different from anyone else What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you do not? See, it's an appeal to humility. He says, what are you boasting in? Are you boasting in the eloquence and professionalism and impressiveness outwardly of a leader? Or are you boasting in the gospel and the gospel-centeredness of the character and the way that that leader behaves? Just a couple of little applications on this. I speak first of all here to the other pastors Uh, then to the elders, then to other ministry leaders in this room. We need to make sure that we stay fools, in the sense that Paul is talking in this passage. We need to make sure that we always remain foolish in the eyes of the world, that we're never outwardly impressive on the basis of who we are, and that we hold to the gospel that is true wisdom. And I speak that to myself as I speak it to Wellesley and Neil, and to the other elders, and the other ministry leaders. Uh, Listen to Don Carson, who wrote a wonderful little book on 1 Corinthians called The Cross and Christian Ministry. Um, It's often the case, he writes, that leaders in the church can suffer the most. This is because they're not like generals in the military who stay behind the enemy lines. They're often the assault troops, the frontline people, who are meant to lead by example as much as by word. To praise a form of leadership that despises suffering is therefore to deny the faith. So it's just a little challenge for us as leaders that to be a true God-honoring leader sometimes means the call to cost and suffering. We mustn't look for the easy out. We mustn't look to build a reputation for our own sake. It's about serving others. A little challenge for all of us as members of the church. Um, Where maybe could we be in danger of overvaluing the outwardly impressive and undervaluing the character Not just of the leaders of the church, but of each other, actually. As we make value judgments of each other around the church. Where are you in danger of undervaluing godliness? Just something to think about this week. Um, Equally, is there ever a danger, maybe, that sometimes we can be guilty of over-examining our leaders? I say this carefully. Of course, there's a high bar set for Christian leadership in God's word. There's a right reason for setting a good example. There's a right place for rebuking leaders, holding leaders accountable. Of course there is. But I think sometimes we can either hold our leaders up on a pedestal, or we can so assume that because they're leaders of a church, they'll never make a mistake. And when each of us does make a mistake, it almost becomes more serious than any other person who makes a mistake. Because we're sort of we kind of over-examining our leaders and expecting sometimes too much. I don't say that to play down the responsibility I hold as a leader, or indeed the responsibility of any others. But sometimes I think we can over-examine our leaders. So just a little challenge. Please rebuke us when we make mistakes, when our tone or our manner is not right. But hold that rebuke in balance with your prayers for us and your encouragement of us. Because that goes a, whole, a huge way. I've had since I've been here some wonderful examples of godly people who've rebuked me, and they've done it in a really helpful way. I've had one or two examples of the opposite. But where people have rebuked in a helpful way, it's been really helpful. But equally, where people have encouraged and prayed, that too has been very helpful. Maybe we can be in danger, and I count myself in this, of being too critical of leaders. Not just the pastors and elders, but maybe ministry leaders. um, People who are trying to serve to the best of their ability with all our weakness. I'll leave that with you to ponder. But what Paul is driving at here is ultimately the wisdom of the world is foolish. Because it makes no room for God. But the foolishness of the gospel is wise. And to help challenge the Corinthian pride a bit further, notice what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10. He uses a a sarcasm here. Paul doesn't use sarcasm very often. It's used sparingly for a reason, because it can be quite biting. But here he says to the Corinthians, speaking of him and the other apostles, We are fools for Christ. You are so wise. We are weak. You are so strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. He's trying to almost use that sarcasm as a rhetorical device to kind of get them to see their very pride that they're living with. Just to give you an example of how serious this got, this was an inscription on a tomb found in Corinth. This chap who uh, spoke these words was a famous um, Stoic philosopher called Diogenes. And on his tomb, he asked for these words to be inscribed. I alone am rich. I alone reign as king in the world. And you read that and you go, arrogant? don't you but if I read that I think a bit more carefully sometimes that can be my attitude and I'm sure it can be your attitude and Paul's wanting to challenge that and say don't be wise in the eyes of the world be a fool because true wisdom comes through godliness and all the way through the rest of this passage Paul is commending faithfulness faithfulness to the gospel that calls us to take up our cross and follow him that wonderful song that Helen just introduced to us really takes the words of Mark chapter 8 and you know the words when Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross Mark chapter 8 verse 34 onwards he says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul or what can a man exchange for his soul if someone is ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with the holy angels. It's really challenging, isn't it? The first will be last. The last will be first. And so as you reflect on the gospel, the very thing that Paul is seeking to commend to mark out a true gospel leader, someone who preaches the gospel, someone who by God's grace uh, lives the gospel, he's saying to the Corinthian church that a pride in themselves and everything that isn't of the gospel just be careful where you find true wisdom where you find true power because you might find that actually you're pretty foolish what would this look like for us this week um, uh, think, think of a kitchen table it's often a time when we gather as families around a table lots of banter talking about the day but often it can be a, an environment for sort of disagreement can't it because it's the first time of a day we gather around the table Are you the sort of person, when there's a little family argument, you have to be proved right all the time? Even if you are right all the time, and I hope you don't think that. Are you the sort of person who can concede, sometimes can be made to look foolish, for the sake of peace, to help build up another? Are you the sort of person who's always looking for the commendation of others to affirm you, rather than looking to the perfect commendation of a loving Father who affirms you? Because the way of the cross is not the way of always being right, always being vindicated, It's not the way of rights. The way of the cross is surrendering all, isn't it? And being prepared to be misunderstood. And it can happen in big ways, but it can happen around the kitchen table at home. Are we prepared just to surrender for the sake of unity and love in the family? Um, Think of going to work on Monday morning for those of you who are in paid employment. Are you proud of the gospel? Do you preach the gospel, both in your words and your actions? So when someone says to you, where were you on Sunday? you just whiz through it as quickly as you possibly can and then talk about the barbecue you had in the sunshine or are you proud of the gospel because true servants preach the gospel are proud of the gospel and what about the place of rebuke in the Christian life uh, how would you naturally respond when a Christian brother or sister rebukes you when it's done well with the example that I just shared earlier but a, a few examples where I've been rebuked in the church when maybe you hear a sermon that pricks your heart it's easy to sort of say well it's easy for the pastor to say that but what a hypocrite I saw him do the exact thing he's telling me not to do (laughs) but you need to know we don't preach because we've got it all right we preach because God has given us a word to be declared but you have to preach it to yourself first so any encouragement or exhortation to the church you can guarantee has been an exhortation to self first but when someone challenges us even in a gentle way isn't it so easy for us just to self-justify to blame and deflect others Yet Paul here gives us a wonderful example of how to both give rebuke and prayerfully receive rebuke. Look at how Paul's rebuke is loving. Verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. It's a very strong letter. As you read through 1 Corinthians, there's 105 imperatives. That's 105 instructions or exhortations. There's lots of strong words in 1 Corinthians. But it's in that context that Paul actually is not looking to shame the church lambast the church beat the church up is actually seeking to instruct them to grow in godliness challenging their pride and saying let's be a church that prides ourselves on true wisdom and so he says verse 21 what do you prefer shall i come to you with a rod of discipline or shall i come to you in love and with a gentle spirit the reason for that verse is paul is not yet with the church he's heard reports of their pride and he writes to them in rebuke They don't seem to get the message he writes a second letter later on but he writes verse 21 because he knows he may have to come and rebuke them but he longs not to have to and if they would grow in humility then he wouldn't have had to risk write his second letter. Shall I come with you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? And the reality is Paul has to do both in many ways because there's some change in the Corinthian church but not enough change and so he does eventually come to encourage the church and challenge them again. But as we bring all this together, I want you to look on the screen again at the buzzwords that the Corinthian church were priding themselves on and this time reflect on your own heart and the state of our church because sometimes we can think we're spiritual and in God's eyes we're not spiritual. Sometimes we can think we're wise, but in God's eyes we're foolish because we make no room for him. Sometimes we pride ourselves on our knowledge, and it's either false knowledge or knowledge that puffs up and leads to disunity and pride. And often we like power, we like recognition, we want to be acknowledged. And God says true power is about giving up everything and surrendering all. And as we pray together as a church, that we as individuals and as a church wouldn't be characterized by Corinthian spirituality, but we'd be characterized by God-given spirituality. Just finally reflect on the cross, because this whole passage has been about true servants preaching the cross, living the cross, witnessing the cross. And when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, was there not great humility that took him to the cross? And that great humility that took him to the cross led to great suffering. And as he hung on the cross, what did everybody in the world say he was looking on? Foolishness. Weakness. And yet as we began our service and as we've sung earlier in the service, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. And as you continue to pray for and encourage all the different leaders across the church... Let's be encouraging godliness in our leaders, not the outward impressiveness that can so often be falsely attractive. And if we are leaders, let's seek by God's grace to be those kind of leaders who are servant-hearted and who are gospel-centered. Because then we can avoid the errors of the Corinthian church and instead build one another up to maturity and to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Should we pray together? Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening and we ask for your forgiveness for the many times where we lack humility. Where in our pride and our selfish ambition we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Please forgive us. Please may this letter to the Corinthian church be like a mirror held up to our own heart to reveal to us the times where we can be proud. Where we can be self-serving instead of being a servant of all. And yet we thank you for the incredible humility of our saviour Jesus. We thank you that the Lord Jesus did not stand on his rights. He didn't have to be vindicated. He didn't have to be outwardly impressive. But was prepared to be ill-treated. Was prepared to be misunderstood. Because he was about your business. Father we pray that you would help us to be a church. To be leaders in the church. To be members in the church. Who are fools for Christ. Not wise in the eyes of the world, making no room for the living God, but fools in the eyes of the world, and yet in the eyes of the living God, wise. And although we lack wisdom, as we've already read from the book of James, we ask that you would give it to us generously, and we thank you that you do not find fault. Please give us the wisdom that we need to be a church that honors you. Please help us to avoid the mistakes that the Corinthians were making. And please help us to pride ourselves on being a people that are servant-hearted and gospel-centered to the honor of Jesus. Amen.